Very good. So warm greetings, everybody. My name is Bhante Joe, and today we're going to be talking about the Buddha's meditation topics. But like anything to do with meditation, the most important thing is actually to practice it. So before we jump in there and start talking about some of the theory behind meditation, let's first jump in and start doing some of the practice. So we're going to try the most common method of meditation, which is breath meditation. And the Buddha gave primacy to two different meditation topics in the canon. Not, not primacy in the sense that everybody should do them, but they're the ones that are most often talked about, most often emphasized. <clears throat> One of them is Anapanasati or breath meditation. The other is a Subhakamatana. We're not going to do a Subhakamatana now. We'll do some Anapanasati. So the important thing to know about anapanasati is often translated as mindfulness of in and out breathing. But actually, the Pali word pana is the same as the Sanskrit word prana. <laughs> so in other words, prana is not just air. We think of breath. The word breath in the English language means air that comes into the lungs. There's an oxygen exchange and the air goes out. Prana means something different. It includes air, but it's also a kind of energy that goes through the body. So because of this, in order to do breath meditation well, we have to understand that what the Buddha was talking that we be mindful of is not just air, but it's also an energy system that exists in the body. So in the classic sutta describing how to do breath meditation, the Anapanasati Sutta, the Buddha gives different steps. It's kind of learn to breathe in and out long, learn to breathe in and out short. You're always breathing in and out mindfully. Breath is always the centerpiece of what's in your mind. And learn to breathe in and out, calming and relaxing the body. Learn to breathe in and out, uh, experiencing rapture, experiencing pleasure, contemplating impermanence. There's all these different ways that one can approach breath meditation. So one of the important things to know about that is to do all of these things well. It's not just a matter of adopting them as a technique, but it's a matter that, of understanding that what we're doing is we're manipulating we're learning to pay attention to and keep in mind and use uh, and use a basically a system that's already existing in the body. And the breath is one of the few things, the few bodily processes that we have conscious control over, like our heartbeat. <laughs> you can't control your heartbeat, really. You can't control uh, your blood circulation consciously, unless somebody's some exceptional meditator. But everybody can control their breath. And we learn that when we control our breath, it affects this energy system, the prana in our body as well. And this is when we learn to control this well, to pay attention to it, we learn how to use it well. We learn that this energy system also affects our mind. It affects our emotions. It affects the way that we think, the clarity with which we think. So our goal in breath meditation, like any other meditation, is not just to master a technique. It's to train our mind. And what are we training our mind for? We're training our mind to grow in wholesome qualities and decline in unwholesome ones. So in this short 15-minute meditation, we're not going to be able to cover <laughs> every single way that one can use the breath to try to develop the mind. But we'll cover some of the basics. One of the basic things is that <clears throat> we learn to use imagination. So we're just going to play a little bit. We'll do breath at the tip of the nose. In learning to calm and relax the body, we also learn to imagine that we can take breath in and out of any part of one's body that one, that one likes. So 
So we'll learn to imagine that we say can breathe in and out from between the eyes. We can breathe in and out from here. And you just think of this in terms of imagination. But with this type of breathing, when breathing this way, it has an effect on the body and that has an effect on the mind. And it gives us more tools in which we can use breath meditation. It's a way that we can use breath meditation to calm and relax the body. It's a way that we can use breath meditation in such a way that we, uh, that we develop the mind. Because some people, they get headaches or tension when they focus on the nose. Some people find it more comfortable to focus here. Some people more comfortable at the chest. You can learn about the connection between the body and the mind. There's a lot to say about breath meditation, and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about it. But first, let's jump in there and do some. So that's the main thing to keep in mind is that we're going to be using imagination. And so first what we'll do is we'll lean forward a little bit and arch our spine and look about three feet in front and close our eyes. And can focus in on the breath. And know when it's coming in. <clears throat> and know when it's going out. If we breathe in a long breath, can just know. I'm breathing in a long breath. And if we breathe in a short breath, can just know I'm breathing in a short breath. And can focus in on the breath at the tip of the nose. And if notice any patterns of tension or tightness around the nose, around the face, can just let those relax. And can relax any patterns of tightness around the cheeks, around the chin. And can practice breathing in and out from this area at the tip of the nose. And when breathing in and out from the tip of the nose, you can try to make the mind a bit like a post in the sea.
And the water comes up over the post, the waves come over the post, onto the beach, and they come back down into the sea. But the post remains where it is. And in a similar way, one can make the mind still, knowing when the breath comes in, and knowing when the breath goes out. And we can shift attention a bit. This time up to the area between the eyebrows. And if notice any patterns of tension or tightness between one's eyebrows. And just let those relax. And can relax any patterns of tension at the temples at the side of the head. Relax any patterns of tension behind the eyes, around the eye socket. And can practice breathing in and out. from this area between the eyebrows. And when breathing in and out between the eyebrows, it would be good to use one's imagination. So one can think of the breath not just as air, that's coming in and out of the lungs, but like a type of energy that's all around and coursing through one's body. And it's possible to pull it into and out of 
any part of the body one might like. So on the in-breath, one can imagine air or breath energy coming into this area between the eyebrows. And on the out-breath, one can imagine breath energy exiting from this area between the eyebrows. Almost like there was a little mouth there. We can shift attention again. This time down past the tip of the nose, down to the base of the neck. And this is just the area where there's a notch in between the collarbone or a notch in the center of the collarbone. And if we notice any patterns of tension or tightness at the base of the neck, we'll just let those relax. And can relax any patterns of tension on the left side of the neck. Can relax any patterns of tension on the right side of the neck. You can practice breathing in and out from this area between the neck at the 
center of the neck, base. Almost like there was a little mouth there. And can shift the tension again. This time back up to the tip of the nose. And can just watch the breath there again. And before we finish meditating, can spread thoughts of goodwill, wishing may all beings all around everywhere be happy and at ease. May they put in place the causes necessary to be happy and at ease. And we can make the mind infinite, can make it unbounded, all the way to the ends of the universe and beyond, in every dimension. May all beings all around everywhere be happy and at ease. And can open our eyes. And we'll continue with our talk, but first start by paying homage to the Buddha. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Buddhang Sarananga Chami, Dhammang Sarananga Chami, Sangang Sarananga Chami. 
Dutiampi buddhang saranangachami, dutiampi dhammang saranangachami, dutiampi sanggang saranangachami. Tatiampi buddhang saranangachami, tatiampi dhammang saranangachami, tatiampi sanggang saranangachami. So, we'll continue on talking a little bit about the way that the Buddha taught meditation. So just now we did a little bit of Anapanasati meditation. Now, one of the interesting things, when one reads the Pali Canon, when one looks through the Canon, the amount of time that the Buddha devotes to meditation seems relatively scarce. There's kind of not much in there about the intricacies of doing various meditation techniques. Some of the instructions for the various meditation techniques are very brief. But then when we look in the Canon, and we try to find out how the Buddha recommends monks live their life, the lifestyle that he recommends for monks is mostly devoted to meditation. <laughs> it's uh, basically a monk should sleep four hours a night, go on Pindapat, speak very little, and spend most of his day meditating. And it also recommends as well, kind of, you can also do some teaching, also do some studying. But the bulk of one's day, the majority of one's day, is to be spent on meditation. So. In the modern day, through historical circumstances that largely occurred in Burma, meditation techniques have become really, really popular. And there's, there's a reason for this is because it can give one a lot of certainty if one thinks, I'm at step A, I should do step B. I'm doing breath meditation, next I should see a nimitta. I'm doing breath meditation, next I should have this sensation. When the Buddha gives a simile for the way that, th the Buddha gives similes for the way that things work, and he's usually able to come up he comes up with similes that are excellent and appropriate for jit for everything. The one thing that he did not, he said he, it was basically very difficult to come up with a simile for was how quickly the mind changed. So even the Buddha could not find something in samsara basically to relate to how quickly the mind changes, especially the fastest changing thing there is. So in other words, the mind is something very complex and its complexities in training the mind, you can't encapsulate them in a single technique. And the Buddha uses metaphors for training. He talks about training horses. Sometimes he compares himself to like a, a trainer, and he can, he can compare himself to a trainer in different ways. And if you're going to train a horse, there's all these different ways you can train it. You think about training even something like a horse. You can't always just use the same technique for every single horse <laughs> all the time. Right? There's no system of training. Even you train somebody to be a doctor or whatever it might be, there's all these intricacies within that skill set that one has to learn that are not encapsulated in a simple technique. Even putting together IKEA furniture, if anybody's ever tried to do that, sometimes you run into problems <laughs> that aren't in the manual. <laughs> so in other words, there's a temptation to view the Buddha's teachings on meditation just as a series of techniques, but when we look through the canon, we don't find techniques there. We find these very broad instructions, learn to breathe in and out, short. Learn to breathe in and out long. Learn to breathe in and out with the whole body. Learn to breathe in and out calming and relaxing the body. And we think about these instructions for Anapanasati. There's so many different ways that one can approach it. And it's not just Anapanasati. It's all the different meditation topics that the Buddha gives. He gives them in almost like a categorical form like this. Basically, it gives the instructions. Now, you go ahead. Now, one of the reasons for this is that traditionally, the canon was not to be learned just from books. Actually, the canon wasn't written down until many centuries after the Buddha's death. It was 
always transmitted orally for a period of time. And what that meant was at least if you wanted to know the Buddha's teachings, you had to at least meet with somebody face to face. And there was, there was always a community. And the Sangha was charged with carrying on his teachings, both in, the, in carrying them on in terms of memorizing them and handing down the teachings that the Buddha gave, and in carrying on the living traditions that allow people to realize them. So, from the time of the Buddha, there would have been monks who knew how to do Anapanasati, knew how to do Buddha Anusati, who were doing all these various meditation topics and could explain the intricacies of how these topics worked for people depending on their character, depending on the situation that they're in. Now, there are teachings that the Buddha gives in the canon about using meditation topics. And when we look at these teachings, we put them together, we see that the Buddha is teaching us to use meditation in various ways to counter defilements. In other words, we direct our mind in a way that makes our good qualities increase and our bad qualities decrease. <laughs> Sounds like something very simple. Right? You've got this topic like Anapanasati. How do I use Anapanasati to reduce anxiety? How do I use Anapanasati to counter my perception that things are permanent? There's a million different ways you can approach this. And the Sangha would have been the repository of this knowledge. People who actually practiced it and actually had realized that you could go to them for advice. Now, when the Buddha gives teachings on meditation and how to approach them in different ways, he sometimes uses a simile like a goldsmith, sometimes uses a simile like a cook. All these things are skills that one has to learn. So the simile of the cook is a really interesting one. He kind of, he says, imagine a cook, a skilled and competent cook, when he puts out like a whole bunch of curries. So I'm here in Sri Lanka right now, and usually meals, they're like rice and then various types of curries that people will put out. And you, get, you get like a dish rice, and then you get many, many different curries coming after that. And maybe, well, depending where you are, maybe three or four. If you're on Pindapot, you go to different houses, you get a different curry in each different house. Now, a skilled and competent cook puts out different curries for his employer, and he watches what the employer takes. If the employer takes more salty curry, he puts more salty curry out. <laughs> if the employer takes more sweet curry, then he puts more sweet curry out. And as a result, the employer likes his cooking and rewards him with wages, rewards him. So the Buddha says in a similar way, a skilled and competent monk knows the chitta nimitta or the theme of his mind. In other words, a skilled and competent monk tries out the different meditation topics that the Buddha gives, tries different ways to approach them, and notices when I meditate in this way, when I do anapanasati in this way, if I breathe in and out short, does my mind become calmer? Does it become more peaceful? Does it become more easeful? Are my good qualities increasing? Are my negative qualities decreasing? A skilled and competent monk watches his mind to learn the theme of his mind in this way. And as a result, whatever it is that one is doing in meditation that gives the best results, one does more of that. <laughs> and in doing more of that, one, is, one, one can get rewarded. One can get rewarded with what the Buddha calls a pleasant abiding here and now. So the Buddha's teachings on meditation are like this. One needs to learn to watch the theme of one's mind. And that sounds like something very, very simple to do. Oh, yeah, no problem. But actually, it's very difficult because the mind, as we talked about earlier, is the fastest changing thing in the world. What worked today in our meditation may not be what works tomorrow. So now we have to learn different approaches, different ways to use the breath to counter our defilement. So now what we're seeing is we're getting into the way that the Buddha taught meditation as not a technique, but as a skill. 
all the various metaphors that the Buddha uses for meditation in the can well, most of them anyway, basically directed, the ones that I'm aware of, direct, they're like skills. It's kind of, you have the similes of the goldsmith, the similes of the cook, you know, the similes of uh, archers piercing great masses. And he never kind of gives them as like, uh, really like, the, you just do exactly this and exactly this and exactly this. It'll give you the same result every single time. So when a person learns a theme of their mind, they learn how to choose an appropriate meditation topic. They learn to you learn to do it well. The mind is something very quickly changing. They have to learn to balance these various conditions that are both in the mind and externally to see how to meditate properly at that time. So you can compare this to like a carpenter. Kind of like a, if we're putting together IKEA furniture, ideally it will always come out the same. But <laughs> I've tried to put together IKEA furniture before and it's come out badly. <laughs> but if you're a skilled carpenter, if you're somebody who really knows how to work with wood, then you can build anything you want so long as you have the appropriate tools. A skilled carpenter can go and look at a plot of land and he can say, I can build this type of building here. This type of land has water in it. I'm going to need this kind of foundation. I'm going to need to build it in this way. I'm going to... And we're going to build it on stilts, maybe, because water comes through. Or if it's something very dry, if it's not, all these different, if it's an icy country like Canada, all these different conditions require different types of construction. A skilled carpenter, from his experience, from his knowledge, knows what to do according to the conditions. And it's the same with meditation. So the Buddha gives a simile of a goldsmith. He says, uh, like a goldsmith basically doesn't always, some, from time to time, a goldsmith has to basically heat up the furnace. From time to time, they have to sprinkle water on the ornament to let it cool. And from time to time, they just have to watch it. And the Buddha says in a similar way, from time to time, a person has to basically exert the mind. And from time to time, a person has to cool it down. And from time to time, a person has to watch the mind with equanimity. You can't just do one of these things all the time. So it says if you, if you basically just watch all the time or you, if, a, if a goldsmith basically just watched the furnace all the time, then the gold would cool. If he basically heated it up all the time, then it would burn up. Yeah? And if he sprinkled it with water all the time, then it would, you know, <laughs> it, would, same thing, it would be something bad. It wouldn't be, uh, it wouldn't be able to make the ornament that he has in mind. You get the picture. I'm paraphrasing here. <laughs> So in a similar way, a person from time to time has to attend to the elements of exertion in the meditation. From time to time, they have to attend to the element of concentration. From time to time, they have to watch the mind with equanimity. And it's kind of just watching how it is. Now, it can be very tempting, again, just to choose one of these approaches. And just Let's just watch the mind with equanimity. And that should get rid of all my defilements. But again, these things don't work that way. That's not the way that it works in reality. Now, what this means is that meditation, you know, it sounds very complicated, it sounds very difficult if you're looking at it this way, but it's something that becomes very interesting. Yeah? There are all these various skills in the world, they're not impossible to master, but you can encapsulate them in a technique. Uh, the beauty of the human mind, the beauty of human psychology and human society is that they're able to encompass this complexity and direct it well towards specific purposes. This is something that humans can do. This is why we have carpenters. This is why we have goldsmiths. And it's why we have meditators, <laughs> or the reason which we can have meditators. The Society of Carpenters helps people train in carpentry. The Society of Goldsmiths 
helps people train in making gold ornaments. And ideally, the Sangha is a society that helps people to train in meditation. So to train well in meditation, another thing that the Buddha recommends is that one have what we call a Kalyanamita, a good friend. Yeah, so a good friend is not like a friend in the sense of somebody who one goes out and hangs out with. A good friend is one who gives one good instruction on how to eliminate one's unwholesome qualities and have one's wholesome qualities grow. Now, we're talking a little bit, backing this up, about human society and the way it's able to direct people. You know, people are very complex. Their minds are very complex, but it's able to direct people. It's able to channel people and train them. You, you notice this. If you go to from different societies, coming from, Sri from Canada to Sri Lanka, you have to behave in a different way. <laughs> society here is different. So, in other words, the society here trains you to be a particular way. The society in Canada trains you to be a particular way. Humans are built like this. They're social animals. And so for us to train our mind well, one of the most important things is that we plug into a culture, we plug into a community, we associate with people we admire who can help us bolster these wholesome qualities that we're hoping to develop. So first and foremost is to have this kind of teacher and have this Kalyanamita when we first begin to meditate. And there's this sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya where the Buddha goes through and he lists all these qualities that lead to increase, basically leads to increase in wholesome qualities. Then he repeats almost the same list and he says, if you have good friends and companions, then you'll get this good quality. You'll have faith, you know, basically these kind of things as far as I remember. And you'll have energy. <laughs> so this is one of the things for being a successful meditator. It's interesting because you can notice that even if you have friends, yeah, you have somebody you look up to, even if you think about this person with respect, whenever you're going to do something, you think, well, what would this person think about that? <laughs> so having this teacher is a crucial element. Now, how to choose a teacher? Yeah. Basically, I remember one time I was in uh, Thailand as a young monk, and I, I went there to this monastery, and the monk was really highly regarded. And I asked him, how should I spend my time here really well? He said, oh, basically spend your whole day meditating, sleep four hours. This was his advice to me, uh, in short. And then as, a, as I was about to leave, I was like, what advice can I, can you give me some advice for my bhikkhu life in the long term? He said, you know, okay, well, go spend your time in seclusion, but for Vasa, come back and stay with a Kuba Ajahn who has the same charit. Now, those are Thai words. But what it basically means is that you should try to find a teacher who has the same personality as you. Somebody who you basically connect with. So, again, we're coming back to this. It seems like something very complex. We've got to find somebody who's going to help us eliminate our defilements. But using the Buddha's metaphor of food, we all know what it's like to meet somebody who we have a connection with and meet a friend that you have a connection with. Meet, uh, if one is a lay person, one might have uh, a husband or wife that one felt a connection to. And it's the same thing in looking for a spiritual teacher. And we look for this person and we go around meeting different teachers. There should be this kind of personal connection. Uh, we feel comfortable around that person. There's just something about our relationship with them that we like. There's something about our relationship with them that just seems to click right, just seems to click. There's not something you can necessarily explain fully intellectually. Now, when you find a person like this, then you can approach them and ask them for advice about your meditation. And especially it's important to find somebody who meditates. Because <laughs> we're saying the mind is something that changes very quickly. 
but actually there's these principles behind the way that you can train it. So people who are experienced meditators, they can sometimes, re they can recognize often the very basic ways in which people can really go off in their practice or really get back on track. And these, these ways are things that are very common to people when they first start to meditate. So finding somebody like this, if we can find somebody that we really connect with, we find somebody uh, who is a skilled and experienced meditator, we can ask them for advice how to meditate. Now, one of the important things to know, we we're talking a little bit about choosing a meditation topic initially. It's like this kind of uh, choosing the right kind of food. You, know, you feel right. You eat, this, you eat this sweet curry and it feels tasty and it tastes tasty. It feels good for your body. You eat the salty curry and the salty curry tastes good for your body. You eat more of that. Now, the Buddha has given many, many different topics of meditation. And you can basically divide these topics more or less into two types. It's a rough division. It's not a division that's found necessarily in the canon, but it's relatively accurate. So on the one hand, you have meditation topics that you can use basically that are basically you're using to just focus on one object more or less. You're trying to develop a wholesome mind state more or less on focusing on one object. And these are what you might call samatha meditation objects. In the canon, the word samatha is used as like a quality of mind. It doesn't necessarily apply it to these topics. So one of them, anapanasati, you can use that for a samatha topic, just keeping the breath in mind, letting the mind calm down. And there's other topics like the four Brahma Viharas, metta, karuna, mudita, upeka. These are topics where you just focus on spreading a particular emotion to all four directions all around, wishing May all beings be well and at ease. Or wishing, may no beings suffer. Wishing, may all beings do well. <laughs> or spreading equanimity to all beings. And these are uh, topics where you just focus on one thing. Then on the flip side, you have another type of topic, which the Buddha calls perception topics. Right? It's interesting because these topics are often referred to as vipassana. And vipassana is another quality of mind that's talked about in the canon. It basically means clear seeing. You see clearly. When the Buddha talks about these topics, he calls them sanyas. So one of them is the sanya of impermanence, a nicha sanya. Another one is the sanya of suffering. You learn to see the suffering in various things. Another one is the, the sanya of not self. You learn to see these things are not mine. I'm not the owner. They're not me. They're not myself. You learn to apply these perceptions to everything. Then you have other ones too. The second most important topic, the second most talked about meditation topic in the canon is a subakamatana. As a subakamatana is when you learn to see the foulness of the body. You learn to go through the body and imagine its various organs, its various parts. So we're not going to jump into these topics necessarily right now and talk about all of them in detail, but just talk about the basic difference between them. You've got the one hand topics that you're mainly focusing on just one object. On the other hand, you've got these sanya topics. So these sanya topics, these perception topics, the way that we cultivate those is the same way that we cultivate perceptions basically as we go through the day. So <laughs> it was kind of interesting. I was doing uh, a meditation course recently, which was really enjoyable. And the last course we covered Vipassana, the last uh, session in the course we covered Vipassana. And so I had the people do an exercise. I said, okay, close your eyes and Bring up in your mind something which you're worried about. But don't look at it directly. 
almost turn your attention away as if you're looking at this worry out of the corner of your eye. You're just kind of looking at it at the corner of your eye. You're not focusing your full attention on it. As you focus your full attention on it, nothing will happen. But you just look at it with just a bare amount of awareness. You put this thought of worry in your mind and what happens? What tends to happen after that is that the thought will jump from one thing to the next. It'll jump from, oh, uh, I've got to pay these bills. What about my job? Oh, the manager said something bad to me today at my job. <laughs> from there it jumps, what about my kids? What about their education? Then it comes back to the mind sometimes. Eventually you get back to the present moment and then you think again about worry. In other words, there's this cycle that goes on with this perception where you have an emotion, you've got a perception, and then you think about it in such a way that it jumps to the future, jumps to the past, and it increases this perception. It builds this like almost vicious cycle where whatever negative emotion it might be increases, you know, worry or whatever it is, anger, you know, the way that the mind proliferates on these emotions. These are perceptions that we develop often and that we hold in mind unknowingly. You know, so. With these topics of meditation, what we actually learn to do is to take this quality of mind where it proliferates on a perception and turn it to our advantage. Yeah? So we learn to think in various ways about the way that things are impermanent. We don't just uh, repeat all the time, this is impermanent, this is impermanent, this is impermanent. We learn to look at the world and these things become our base. They can almost become the basis for which we see the world. We cultivate these perceptions over and over again. Yeah? Looking at this table, this table is impermanent. It's going to fall apart. Yeah. And look at a house. Imagine the house as it breaks down. Imagine what it's like in 20 years. And sometimes we come across a derelict house. Then we stop and stare at the house and try to get the image of the house in our mind. And then we look at a beautiful house that we really like and imagine it slowly breaking down. Yeah. We can use words to cultivate these perceptions. And these things are impermanent. They're going to come up. These are, they're going to deteriorate. These are all the ways in which the mind usually proliferates on things out of our control and causes us to suffer. So in other words, we're taking, when we meditate, these elements of our mind that are usually untrained, and we're learning to train them. Yeah. So coming back to this metaphor of meditation like a skill, the Buddha sometimes gives metaphors of horses, as we talked about. You imagine like in ancient times when people had to ride horses. They didn't have uh, cars so much. <laughs> they just had to ride a horse everywhere. If you had a poorly trained horse, if you go into an area that's scary or an area that's dangerous, if that horse gets afraid, it flips out, it throws you off its back and it runs away and you're left in this dangerous area. So in a similar way, when our mind is not well trained, if it goes into dangerous places, if it goes into places that uh, are unusual, that are frightening, where things can harm us, then we can lock up. We can get overcome with emotion. We can we can lose out in those situations if our mind is not well-trained. But if you have a well-trained horse, one that you've spent a lot of time teaching it to be calm in difficult situations, teaching it all these various elements so that it, it knows the various ways to traverse difficult country, it knows to stay calm under pressure, it knows all these various things, that's a horse that you can trust to take you far distances and you don't have to worry about. So what we're trying to do here when we meditate, both with Samatha and with Vipassana, is we're trying to train our mind. So we talked a little bit about training our mind for wholesome and unwholesome qualities. Now, this is basically where the whole rest of the canon comes in. <laughs> the Buddha spends so much time in the Sutta Pitaka talking about what's wholesome, what's unwholesome, you know, what we should develop and what we should avoid. So 
It's when we go out into our life, we see the way that we see the way that basically uh, good or bad things arise in our mind. Then this is when we take that knowledge that we gain from the sutta, and we try to apply it to our life. We try to train our minds using meditation to make the things that he said should grow grow, and to make the things that he said should decline decline. And in this way, our mind becomes something that's more and more trustworthy. It's something that becomes more and more safe. It's something that we can rely on more and more to take us through difficult territories, to take us into difficult places. It's something we don't have to worry about. You get on a poorly trained horse, you're always worried it's going to throw you off. You get on a well-trained horse, you don't worry. <laughs> so there's immense benefits to training the mind. Actually, this is the way that the Dhammapada starts. It says, uh, basically, speak or act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you. you speak or act with an impure mind and trouble will follow you. There's another verse in the Dhammapada where the Buddha says that whatever an enemy would do to an enemy, a poorly trained mind can basically do worse. And whatever good things a friend would do for a friend, a well-trained mind is even better. So what we're learning to do here is to train our mind well. And this is something to keep in mind. Because oftentimes if we're used to meditating just as a technique, we're going to be looking for the next thing that technique says that we should get right? <laughs> okay, I've been practicing breath meditation. Uh, one's been practicing breath meditation. Did I see a nimitta? Right? Or did I get these various vipassana bhumis or vipassana knowledges or whatever it might be? <laughs> these things are actually not that important to think about. Yeah? If an experience like that comes, it'll come. But the importance of these experiences is not because they're somewhere in a book. They're important because often these experiences that people talk about, they follow on the heels of a significant reduction or a destruction of a person's defilements, a, a significant reduction or destruction of the bad qualities that have been causing us to suffer all the time. Right? So what we learn to focus on when we're meditating is not so much, am I getting this experience? Am I getting that experience? It's simply, are my good qualities increasing, my bad qualities decreasing? If, if, we, know that, if we know that we get very angry, for example, uh, when we're driving to work, or <laughs> we know we get very anxious. You know, if we're a monk or so, we get very anxious. Uh, uh, you know, we don't get enough pindapathy. These are defilements of the mind. They're ways that we can use meditation to train our mind to become more calm in these situations so that we don't suffer from them and that we can decide well in them. And this is like the well-trained horse that can go into dangerous areas. Now, this is something very, very easy to talk about, right? Oh, yeah, you kind of reduce your bad qualities, increase your good ones. It's something very difficult to do. And it's very hard to do. <laughs> Actually, one of the important things to know about meditation, this is the most difficult work that there is in the world. And there's nothing that changes as fast as the mind. And here we are trying to train it. But because the mind is the forerunner of everything, if we train the mind well, we can train it so that regardless of what situation we're in, we can be at ease. This is something that one can see directly for oneself. This is why the Dhamma is said to be something that's experienced individually by the wise. So this is something that all meditation traditions have basically emphasized, as far as I'm, a, you know, that I'm aware of, I could say. <laughs> the ones I'm aware of. They emphasize the primacy of experience, direct experience over the primacy of sutta study or just study. It's not to say that study is not important. But study 
in the Buddhist context was always done in a community in the Buddhist time and the way he basically intended it, more or less. And it was always done for a purpose of practicing for realization, for a purpose of realization. That's the purpose of study. And we, we study so that we can practice and learn to eliminate our defilements. <laughs> it's kind of interesting, just uh, continuing on with this dichotomy between study and practice. And that you can, you know, I've met people, I meet a lot, a lot of people from time to time. They studied so much, they can't keep the five precepts. They know what they are. <laughs> they can't keep them. You know, they, they'll tell lies when it's convenient for them. They'll steal things when it's convenient for them. They're not usually big things. They'll tell little lies, not to hurt people's feelings. They say little. Or they'll steal minor things when it's inconvenient for them. Take things from the forest or, you know, whatever it might be. Something minor like that. And this is lying. This is stealing. So we have to learn to train our minds. We have to learn to train our actions such that they're in line with the Buddha's teachings. And this goes far beyond study. It goes on into our lives in the way that we're actually suffering, the way that we're actually becoming happy. So as we grow in skill in meditation, we learn to choose an appropriate topic. We've got a good teacher, a good community. We've got people around us who are meditating. And we learn to train our mind in various ways. We find as we become more skilled at knowing what situations bring something up in our mind and what situations cause these things that come into our mind to diminish. And we learn to become more skilled in anticipating them. And we learn to become more skilled in applying the appropriate antidote. So now we'll move on a little bit to talk about some of the ways that Buddha talked about meditation topics because he talks about them like a doctor. Now sometimes, the Buddha compares himself to a doctor. And you imagine these different meditation topics that he gives almost like they're antidotes to different venoms that are in the mind, different poisons that are in the mind. Right? The Buddha uses this word asava to describe some of the taints. An asava, it's like a, it's like a sore or an infection that's become so infected that the infection emits something like pus. <laughs> Or like some discharge comes out of this wound because it's so infected. So we learn to apply the right medicine to these asavas, the right medicine to these wounds. So now let's jump in there and talk a little bit about the different medicines that the Buddha gives for these different meditation topics. And if you're listening to this talk, whether recorded or live, the important thing to think about when we talk about this is, what is the main way that I have one of these asavas? What is the main way that I have one of these infections and what appropriate remedy can I apply to it? So for anxiety, anxiety is often caused by proliferation of thoughts. One is just so used to thinking, thinking all the time, all the time, all the time. The remedy for that that the Buddha gives to cut off thinking is anapanasati. One learns to stay more and more in the present moment. In this way, one's thoughts can't proliferate. It's actually amazing how much suffering comes just from thinking. <laughs> it's an incredible amount. Right? What's going to happen in the future? You know, what happened in the past? One is very rarely right there in the present moment. You imagine if I'm just doing this with my hand, just putting my hand to the ground, how much suffering is there in that? Right? How much suffering is there in this next word that I'm saying? It's very little. It's, it's quite manageable. So when one learns to stop one's mind from proliferating, from thinking unnecessarily, one reduces or can cut out this stress, this suffering that comes from anxiety. 
So if one is an anxiety type person, one wants to try to apply this medicine. Right? Now this may be the, the main topic that you want to choose. For hatred, hatred is this feeling that you want people to come to harm. You actually dislike them. There's this feeling of like anger and dislike coupled with harm. It's different than what we might call cruelty. Cruelty, you can be kind of cruel, but you don't hate the person. You just want to see them suffer for your own enjoyment. And a lot of comedy is like this. <laughs> Hatred is something different. You want the person to suffer. So if one gets angry very often, you know, you ever travel with people in traffic in Western countries, this is where people's anger tends to come out very strongly, kind of at other drivers. <laughs> We can know this for ourselves. If we're an angry person, the medicine for anger is metta. We might call what is often translated as loving kindness, but is probably more accurately translated as goodwill. So we learn to spread this attitude of goodwill to all beings. If we're somebody who's very cruel, like we just kind of enjoy seeing other people suffer, you might think of this as like a torturous person, but you know that's not necessarily the case. It can just be somebody who uh, is very competitive sometimes. You know, sometimes very competitive people, uh, they like to see it when people fail. They don't like to see it when people do well. And they can, they can like to, they can enjoy people's misfortunes. Actually, like I said, a lot of comedy is like this. You watch some comic shows, people are just suffering all over the place. We're laughing at their misfortune. <laughs> this is what we might call cruelty. So this kind of antidote to cruelty is learning to spread karuna or compassion to all directions. Now, for a jealous person, we get very jealous at other people's successes. The antidote to that is learning to spread mudita, or empathetic joy, to, in all directions to all beings. And if we're a person who gets very, very passionate, like somebody gets very passionate about things, eh? you meet people like this when they start talking about politics, <laughs> right? They start talking about, uh, you know, rugby or football or whatever it might be. And they get really, really worked up. Oh, this politician did this, and you know, this rugby, you know, this guy did, and they just get more and more worked up, more and more worked up, more and more. It comes from this passion. The antidote for that is learning to be equanimous, learning to spread equanimity. So, those are some antidotes on the samatha side, where we're just focusing on one topic. The antidote's more on the vipassana side. If one is a person who's like overcome by lust very often, the antidote to that is learning to see the foulness of the different parts of the body. Right? That's how one of the ways that one can do it. If one is somebody who is lost in this kind of like joy de vivre, just like celebrating, you know, life too much all the time, partying, one can think of mindfulness of death. Oh, wait a minute. I'm going to die. What's really important for me to do right now? <laughs> think about the various ways in which one could die. One can go visit a cemetery and stay in a cemetery, and that'll give one a whole different set of perceptions. It's kind of funny because people, they often know what's important. They often know what they should do, but they put it off <laughs> for long periods of time until they get caught with something like a terminal illness or until they think they're going to die. Then they think, oh, I should really get this done. I should really do this. And they look back on their life. They think, oh, I should have done this. And we don't have to wait till that time, right? You, you can get swept away in life, swept away with running for the next job, running for the next promotion, you know, running for the, one can run for the next, whatever it might be. And one totally forgets that one's going to die at all the end of it. So what's really important to do? 
<laughs> so keeping mindfulness of death, the mindfulness that I'm mortal, keeping this in mind, cultivating this perception is the antidote. So there's these various antidotes to the obstructions that come into one's mind. And as we already talked about, one has to learn different ways to use them skillfully so that they counter the particular defilements that are there at that time. So now let's jump a little bit more into some of these topics so that people who have this particular defilement can know, can get, you know, a few kind of approaches to try to work with it. But all the time we keep in mind that basically these are not techniques. It's something, these approaches may work for four, five, six, ten days, for a month, for a year, and then they might stop working when the conditions in a person's mind changes. So one has to learn to tweak them. So let's jump in there, get a little bit deeper into Anapanasati and talk about how one can use it. So the body has this energy system in it. It's not recognized by modern Western science, but I think it's well recognized in Eastern medical science, Eastern medical philosophy. They call it qi in Chinese. They call it qi or, or qi in Chinese and prana in the Indian systems. We learn to get familiar with the way that the breath flows through the body, you can start to see the way that emotions affect the breath, the way that emotions affect tension in the body, the way that mind states affect one's breath, the way that mind states affect tension in the body. And if one can learn to do this, then one can learn to manipulate the way that one breathes. One can learn to manipulate the way one holds tensions in one's body, and in turn, that will flip back and manipulate the emotions. It, it manipulates the thoughts, too. <laughs> this is one approach that one can learn to use. If you get very anxious, watch the way that a person, one can watch the way one breathes when one is anxious. What's it like? And what's the tension in the body like? And what's the, what's the energy in the body like? And then when you're calm, when a person is feeling calm, watch how the breath is at that time. What's the energy like? What's the body like? Is it tense? Is it relaxed? Now, once you've gotten this in mind, then the next time you're anxious, change the way that you breathe so that it's the same as the way that you breathe when you're calm. And watch what happens to the mind. And this is one approach that you can use. <laughs> so with metta, if a person is suffering from hatred a lot, then one of the important things to know with spreading this metta is that it doesn't mean that you have to fall in love with everybody. If we're spreading metta to all directions, we want to eliminate hatred. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to start to love the people that you don't get along with. Actually, for monks, there's this, there's this chant that we do where we spread metta to snakes, and then we ask them to leave. <laughs> so there's a line in the, in the metta sutta where it said, uh, basically it says, like, just as you should basically cultivate metta as a, as a mother would protect her child her only child, so too should you spread metta to all beings, basically. So in other words, we want to protect this mind state in the same way that a mother would protect her child. We want to protect this mind state of goodwill. And what this mind state means is that not necessarily that we're going to love everybody like a mother loves her child. Actually, the word for love in the canon is pema. And there's a sutta called from one who is dear. It's called the Piyajataka Sutta. And the Buddha basically makes it clear that the people that we fall in love with, that we really love, are people who cause us to suffer. 
<laughs> we suffer when anything happens to them. So metta is not the same as love. What it is is this attitude wishing that people may be well. May you be well. May you be happy and at ease. But we also recognize that if people are going to be happy and at ease, they have to put the causes in place to be happy and at ease. So what we actually wish for is may you be happy and at ease. May you put the causes into place to be happy and at ease. Now, this is something very practical because you can wish this for somebody you don't like. If you don't like Donald Trump, you can still wish, may you be happy and at ease. May you put the causes into place to be happy and at ease. It, it eliminates hatred for that person, but it doesn't necessarily eliminate the fact that there's some people just because of our personalities that we won't mesh well with, but we still don't wish bad things for them. We don't want harm to come to them. So this spreading of metta is something very, very practical. Now for the Vipassana topics, let's uh, flip over a bit. So I'm going to jump through the other Brahma Viharas that we did because we're running out of time a little bit. But just to delve a little bit deeper into some of the Vipassana topics. So to get deeper into these, to learn different approaches to these, you can understand that there's basically two ways that one can conceive of the mind making perceptions. On the one hand, it uses words. Whatever the language one is in, you can see this. One thinks in that language. The words can come up. This is going to happen. This happened. This is this. I'm doing this, this thing. The other way that the mind does things is it uses images. There may be more ways in this to the combinations of them and sounds. We can just say like images as a, uh, as a category that covers the experience. Kind of, it's sometimes primarily visual. But, you know, maybe sounds come in, maybe sights and smells come in. So in these ways, one cultivates perceptions. Now one, for example, let's use a bad perception. One is worried about the future, worried about one's job. One might sometimes think, oh my gosh, what am I going to do if I get fired? That thought as a word comes into one's head. Then one might have an image <laughs> of like one's family on the street or whatever it might be. This is the way that the mind cultivates perceptions. So we can learn to turn these perceptions on their head the, using these two ways. If, kind of, if it's a perception of anxiety, it's a perception like, uh, you know, this house is my house, this family is my family, and we're suffering whenever that, that doesn't work out that way. We learn to think, we learn to speak to ourselves, to talk to ourselves in ways that are to the opposite. Now, wait a minute, this house isn't mine. And look at the look at the crack in the wall. Obviously, it's changing. I mean, I can patch it up, but it's made of materials that are impermanent. It's going to stop. You know, it's going to fall apart eventually. Also, I have a mortgage. So maybe this house isn't totally mine. It belongs to the bank. <laughs> the bank can take it away. I don't own this house. Hmm? What this can do is it can pull the mind back from these things that we really love, but that cause us to suffer when they change. Hmm? This is the verbal aspect. We can also use it visually. Right? So if it's our house, we're just using the house as an example. I'm talking about how it's not mine, I'm, it's not myself. We can just imagine the house falling apart, right? Yeah, doing this skillfully, right? Or we can imagine that we get too sick to live in the house and it has to be sold. Right? We, we can't walk. All of a sudden, you can't go up the stairs. You can't live in the house. You have to move to a condo or something like this. We can put the image into our mind of this happening. Right? Not that it's going to happen, doing it skillfully, but as something that could happen. So in these ways, we can use both the words, the verbal fabrications, and also the images uh, in order to counter, in order to cultivate perceptions to the opposite. Use these sanya topics. 
So that's getting a little bit deeper into some of these topics of meditation. Now let's jump a little bit forward and talk about the ardency with which one has to meditate. <laughs> so meditation is something that starts small, right? like anything else, right? If we start with a skill learning to be a cook, we start just learning how to chop cucumbers or whatever it might be, something small. Eventually, after training in that for a long period of time, you can make fabulous dishes. Right? You can have a skill where you can look at the ingredients in your cupboard and know what to put together. So because meditation is a skill and not a technique, it takes time to develop the skill. It's something that one has to have commitment to, to do well. And it's, it's like any other skill. It's often something that's a matter of hours that one puts into it deliberately trying to improve. Right? So it's good to have this idea in mind about meditation that's accurate. An idea in mind about training the mind that's accurate. This is going to take work. <laughs> but it's the most important and valuable type of work. So with these types of topics, the Buddha gives a simile for uh, for how one should keep in mind, say, like, a mind, he says, mindfulness of the body, which can be both the breath and a subhakamatana. He says, imagine that there was this crowd that gathered. So these days we have, like, street performers. In those days they had courtesans, these really pretty girls who were performers, and also they were doing other things too. But in any event, they would go and perform sometimes. And then a big crowd would gather around them. And he said, imagine that there was this courtesan, she was dancing, a big crowd gathered around, and you were given basically a bowl of oil and said, put this bowl of oil on your head, put this bowl of oil on your head or carry it, one of the two, and right behind you, a man will be coming and with a, with a raised sword. And if you spill even a drop of that oil, then he'll cut your head off right there. And the Buddha says, what do you think? Would that person let their attention stray away from that bowl of oil? I said, no. And he said, well, the simile is to convey a meaning. It's basically that that's the way that you should keep attention on the body, mindfulness of the body. So we learn to start small, building up these meditation techniques, learning to use it to eliminate our unwholesome qualities. And we do it more and more until we actually start to approach our life more and more through meditation rather than through this chase for external things. Oftentimes, when a person doesn't know what it is that makes them happy, they're just chasing you know, the, the next promotion, the next house, right? the next car. They're just chasing. And they think that thing will make them happy. They get it, and it doesn't. <laughs> so they, get, they go looking for something else. So in other words, people try to solve the problems of unhappiness in their life with looking for the next external thing. When we flip that on its head and we start to try to solve the problems in our life more and more with meditation, then this is when we become more and more like this person who doesn't let their attention slip away from the bowl of oil. Right? It's not something that we necessarily have to think, oh man, that's too hard, I can't do it. It's something we can build up as we recognize the benefits that come from training our mind. And we recognize the happiness that comes from training our mind. Now, when we do things in this way, then our meditation topic becomes what we, we might call a satipatthana. The, the Buddha uses this word satipatthana. It means like establishing of mindfulness. Or it can mean foundation of mindfulness. In other words, the way that we usually see the world is through perceptions that we don't control. Usually we're thinking of things as their mind. We're thinking how we want to get the next thing. We're not controlling our mind. It's just running wherever it wants, like a, a poorly trained horse or a poorly trained dog. We learn to yoke it. We learn to tie it to this meditation topic. 
And this meditation topic, rather than these random perceptions, becomes more and more the way that we see the world. We see the world more and more, say, through our breath. How is the world affecting my breath? <laughs> right? And how is my breath affecting my mind? We see the world more and more in this way. And what this means is that our world, the way that we're actually living, becomes more and more under our control. Right? We can't control the things external to us. When we're launching out to them, and that's what's important to us, that's our world. But when our world is our meditation topic, when we use this to solve our problems, this becomes more and more our world. That's the world that we live in. Right? So when this is what's important to us, when this becomes a basis or a foundation for our mindfulness, when it's the way that we see the world, when we focus on these things, not letting our mind stray out, like if we were holding a bowl of oil or going through a crowd with a beauty queen, then this is what, we, what one can say, can happen, one can develop what they call the jhanas, and these states of kind of bliss, states of happiness that are far superior to any other type of happiness that one has experienced before. It requires a huge amount of dedication, but the dedication is worth it for people to cultivate because this is a much higher level of happiness. This is on the samatha side when one learns to focus on a single object. But more important in terms of meditation is that we're doing this to be happy, right? <laughs> the purpose for which we do everything is to be happy. We train our minds so that we can be happy. Usually we're just running all over the place. And the reason that we run and search for these things is because we think that they're going to make us happy, but they don't. Okay? So when we, we turn our mind to Vipassana, to these, we're going to call Vipassana, to the perception topics, we're cultivating these perceptions with an investigation in, in mind. Why is it that my mind keeps launching out to these things? I know they're going to cause me to suffer, <laughs> but I can't give them up. I'm addicted. Okay? Addicted to the next car, addicted to the next house. I know that it's not going to do what I hope it will. <laughs> but when I go there, my mind is gone. We have to investigate this. This is why the Buddha says that ignorance is the cause of suffering. It's us who's launching out to these things. We're the ones who are doing it. We're the ones who go launch out to the house, launch out to the car, launch out to a body. We're the ones who grab these things. We want them and we suffer. <laughs> when they don't do it, we hope they will. And we suffer from old age. We suffer from sickness. We suffer from death because of our addictions to things. We're addicted to these things because we don't see them properly. We don't see them clearly because as we talked about, going through the day, although we might know intellectually from reading a book that all phenomena are not self, all phenomena are suffering, right? <laughs> all phenomena are impermanent, when we go through our day, when we're not mindful, when we don't have a satipatthana, we're thinking the opposite. The perceptions that we cultivate just going through our day are the opposite. We're, cu we're cultivating perceptions all the time. Oh, this house is great. It's permanent. It's mine. <laughs> you know, I'm going to do this with it in 10 years. I'm going to do this with it in 20 years. You know? Oh, my body, you know, I really, you know, the body's really great. You know, I'm going to do this with my body in 10 years, in 20 years. I did this with it in the past. These are perceptions that the body's permanent, that it's mine, that it's desirable. These are perceptions that the house is mine. It's permanent. It's desirable. We're thinking about what we're going to do with it. <laughs> we cultivate these perceptions. So we learn to take these perceptions on and cultivate the opposite so that our mind detaches from these things. This is a, the word upadana both means clinging. When people, we cling to things, but we're also sustained by them. We feed on these things. We're addicted to them. 
So we learn to cultivate vipassana to break our addictions. And we, we get this joy or pleasure that we get from focusing on one thing. And from the jhanas, one can get the joy or pleasure from the jhanas. But we also, uh, but we also learn to use that joy or pleasure to look clearly <laughs> at things, to see clearly where one is creating perceptions, and to see clearly how one is creating perceptions that cause one to suffer, and why one is addicted to these things, so that one can let them go. So the Buddhist path of meditation is something very, very practical. Right? It's, it's a training. We're training our mind for happiness. We start by training it to eliminate our bad qualities and develop good ones. We move on to train our minds to try to develop the jhanas. And finally, we learn to train our minds to see clearly so that we can give up our addictions to things that cause us to suffer. We can give up our clinging, our upadana, not just to our house, to our car, but to everything, to samsara itself. Because this is why we suffer. We cultivate perceptions to the opposite. We think samsara is a great place to be. <laughs> we don't see what it's like in that moment. So meditation can go very deep in this way. It doesn't go deep necessarily in the sense that we're going to see big Amidhamma terms, that we're going to see chetasikas and mind moments, that we're going to learn the way that the world evolves and devolves, that all these things are, you know, these things that are in the books that are not from the Buddha teachings that we're going to get some big insights into that. What we're going to do if we train our minds is to get insights into what causes us to suffer and how to let it go. And there's nothing more important than that. This is the highest goal of Buddhist teachings, is to eliminate our own suffering. And meditation is the path that the Buddha taught to do this. And it was given in brief in the canon, almost in categorical form, and it's given in brief so that we can develop it as a skill so that we can find kalyanamitas to help us along the path, so that we can choose an appropriate meditation topic to help us eliminate our defilements, so that we can learn to use it like a carpenter uses his tools to shape a house. We can learn to shape our minds, shape them so that they're good, shape them so that they're safe, so that they can take us through dangerous areas. But at the end of it all, we learn to let go even of the things that we've been shaping even if things that are conditioned, because whatever we grasp onto that's conditioned will cause us to suffer. Hmm? And we learn to train our mind to let go of these addictions so that we can find something better, so that we can find a peace that doesn't depend on conditions. And this is the aim of the Buddha's teachings. It's available all the time at any stage in the Buddha's dispensation to whoever wants to train their mind for it, whoever wants to practice for it. And this is why it's most important that we do this work ourselves. It's much, much more important than reading the books, training our mind for a happiness that doesn't change. Okay, so think that, leave that for reflection. That's been about an hour and 15 minutes, and I think uh, we're going to try to go for an hour and a half total. Uh, and I think there, we're going to chat a bit about if there's any questions, I could try to answer questions. Uh, but if there's no questions, that's also fine. So, so please post your questions in the comment section. Okay. So what's that one say there? I'm, I'm sorry, my face is going to get really big because I can't see what the question says. Can you explain the differences between cruelty, sadism, viciousness, etc.? So, 
Sure. So again, it's not just the face that we had a limited amount of time to do uh, meditation today. So I only went around the face, but actually you want to go through and learn to, one wants to go through and learn to relax the whole body. So this is part of the instructions in the Anapanasati Sutta, to learn to breathe in and out, relaxing the body. So the reason that we relax the body is because actually thoughts travel or are lodged in patterns of tension in the body. So if you talk to massage therapists or talk to different people, they, they sometimes tell you stories. Like they've been massaging some, they'd be massaging some pattern of tension in a person's body that they couldn't get rid of. And all of a sudden when it released, some memory came up. So what we're trying to do basically is to get our mind to focus on a single object. And to do that, basically the body needs to become more and more relaxed. It's because the way that we direct energy, the way that we direct thoughts, like I said, there's this energy system in the body. That energy system or the way that we direct thoughts is also bound up with the body. So this is something that becomes, that can become very obvious to meditators as they meditate. That, that patterns of tension in the body are associated with thoughts. So as we were chatting a bit about, when you learn to manipulate these things with the breath, with the body, we also manipulate emotions and thoughts. So if you find it, if a person finds it comfortable, if they find it effective to go through these patterns of tension in the body and relax them, if they get some kind of um, calmness from that, or if they, if they find some interesting things, oh, I relax this pattern here, I've always got this tension in my chest, or what, sometimes people always have tension in a particular part of their body. When they learn to relax it, they can find that it's somehow associated with emotions that they have or whatever it might be. So if they find that helpful, they can take that approach. Another type of person, there's a, there's a type of person who basically can't feel their body at all. <laughs> there are these types of people. And when they meditate, they tend to get images more than other people. So for that type of person, maybe just focusing on the touch point at the nose or whatever it might be is fine. Again, with meditation, the main thing we want to watch is this increasing my good qualities and decreasing my unwholesome ones. But if we are just focusing on this touch point of the breath at the nose, if you're finding that you're getting stuck and your meditation isn't going anywhere, that's when you might want to try out these other things that are in the Anapanasati Sutta. Learning to calm and relax the body, learning to breathe in and out long, learning to breathe in and out with the entire body. So that's the long and short of it. It's fine as long as you find that you're progressing. <laughs> okay, so what was the next question? I think you said there was another question there. Okay, I find... Yes. Yeah, so, oh, sure. Okay. Um, so yes, basically what's translated as you have like hatred and what's also called the intention to harm in the canon. And the, those, those two intentions, what's basically called the intention to harm and hatred are different. Hatred is basically this emotion of like dislike and coupled with wanting that person to, you know, to meet with harm. harm. The intention of harming, you don't necessarily dislike the person, but you enjoy 
seeing that person suffer, right? Uh, hatred is a different emotion. There are two different emotions. So if you spread metta, if you wish may all beings be well, you, sometimes this emotion of harming, the cruelty can still come up. This is, it's like this, in, it's this, this delight in people's suffering. So as I was saying, a lot of the time comedy is like this. You just watch most of the comedy shows. Terrible things are happening to people. And it's like very funny, right? <laughs> so that can come up in a person's meditation. So karuna is the antidote to this cruelty and metta is the antidote to hatred. Everybody knows what that's like, where you're angry with somebody, you actually dislike them. You really want to see them suffer, right? This cruelty can sometimes just be more like a, a general emotion, it's not necessarily directed to that person. You just like seeing people suffer. You think it's funny or you think it's good or you enjoy it. So that's the distinction. Okay. So is there any more, was there any, sorry, was there any more questions? Okay, great. Sure. So I think basically we've said it all. Um, just chatted about meditation for quite some time. And as I said at the end of the talk, the most important thing to do is to practice. So I hope that uh, whoever listened to this talk or listens to it online or listens to it later, that it's, uh, that it's an aid, that the Buddhist teachings are an aid uh, in your practice. And I hope that your practice leads to the highest goal, which is Nibbana or the end of suffering. Okay. Oh, oh, we have, uh, oh, we have one more question. <laughs> um, so I won't repeat the, the, the closing, but I'll, I'll answer this question. When we practice meditation, do we perform metta simultaneously or before slash after? So you can, you can do either. I mean, it, it's good to, the way that I was taught meditation is you usually close with metta. You can also open with it. You don't have to. It's just nice to have this attitude of goodwill towards all beings. It's just a nice feeling. Um, so it, uh, it can keep the meditation from becoming a little bit too dry or, say, like too focused on oneself. It, although all meditation topics are related to oneself. But you can do it before or after as you like. Just experiment and see what you like. But... You'll be doing it all the time or mostly if you try out metta and you find that it's like a suitable topic for you, like eating food that tastes good. And then you know that that food is the right food for you. If you try out metta and it just feels like this topic that really clicks, like meeting a person that you like, like eating food that you like, then that's probably a good one for you to basically do most of the time. You might have a few other ones that you bring in for other defilements, but if that's your main topic, then you would just do it all the time. So again, as to whether or not to do it before, do it after, do it during, do it all the time. The litmus test is whether your good qualities are increasing and your bad qualities are decreasing. <laughs> whether it feels right. And if you have a meditation teacher that you're working with, they'll know you well and they'll be able to help guide you or help give you pointers or suggestions in that. Okay. So is there any more? Questions? Okay, so going once, going twice. Okay, so we can finish. 
just, oh, there's one more. Oh, how do we enjoy meditation? Okay, here we go. Okay, we've got one more. <laughs> okay, on the, on the going twice, it came up. So how do we enjoy meditation? So you enjoy meditation if you choose, it, you're more likely to enjoy it if you choose a topic that you like, right? A lot of the time, like I said, one of the main reasons people run into these kind of like walls with meditation is that they don't meditate in a way that's appropriate for them. Now they're, they're trying to do a technique and they're trying to get results that somebody else said they should get results for. If you meditate in such a way that you're looking for what it is that causes you to suffer and you're trying to eliminate that, <laughs> then you're more likely to enjoy it. So just watch when you meditate, choose a good topic. You, one can choose a good topic. One can keep in mind, why am I suffering? What is it that's making me suffer? Is it, a, is it anxiety? Is it anger? You know, is it, uh, is it like sloth? Am I getting really, really depressed? What is it that's making me suffer? And then choose a topic that counters that. Yeah? When you see that thing that makes you suffer, the big thing that's making you suffer and your life diminish, then take joy in it. Yeah? Learn to use that extra energy that you have to develop more wholesome qualities and to, to meditate more. And this way, it'll become a virtuous cycle, right? Where your bad qualities are going down, you're happy because of it, your good qualities are going up. And because of that, you want to you put more energy into meditation and you get more good qualities. So this is one of the ways that you can enjoy meditation more and carry it forward. Okay, so I think... Yep. So you put, po please post your questions here, but not many more. So it was nice to get together and talk with everybody today. So, oh, <laughs> what do we have? How to difference if the likeness of the object is wholesome and not turning likeness into craving for that object? Yes. So, for example, breath meditation. So, craving is the cause of suffering in Buddhism. But what you notice when you practice Buddhism is that he takes all the elements of samsara and learns to turn those elements to destroy samsara itself. So there's a sutta where he gives the simile of the raft, right? And you, you're crossing this really dangerous jungle and you, you see the further shore, which is uh, safe. And so to do that, you get all these vines and things together and twigs and you bind them together. Things from this shore, you bind them together to make a raft. And then you, with effort, you paddle across the shore using this raft. And when you get to the other shore, the Buddha says, okay, what do you think you should do? When you get to the other shore, should would an astute person take the raft and carry it around on its head? <laughs> no, he'd leave the raft there. It's done its work. So in the same way, we don't eliminate craving by just thinking I shouldn't crave. The mind works on a process of addictions, right? You think of it, you can think of it this way. We're addicted to things that we know make us suffer. So if you've ever given up an addiction, what you do when you give it up is you replace it with a less powerful one. When, it, when the cravings come up, you replace that with something that's uh, less harmful. If you're used to eating junk food, you replace it with exercise, maybe, right? It's still an addiction, <laughs> but it's a more wholesome one. So are taking these things, the vines and reeds, and binding them into the raft, these are the elements of samsara, like our breath, the four elements, you know, like metta. These are conditioned things. Yeah? We bind them together. We know that we're suffering, so we have a desire to get out. This is a type of craving, right? 
<laughs> we bind the raft together and then we paddle. We make an effort to cross to the further shore. This also requires desire and effort. It's only when we get to the further shore that we let go of the raft. So in other words, we develop craving for breath meditation, right? And we develop craving for wholesome states. But it's only when we've gotten rid of all of our other addictions that we turn our mind to those addictions, to the Dhamma addictions themselves. And there's suttas where the Buddha talks about things like this, where, uh, <clears throat> where a person, their mind doesn't launch to Nibbana because of Dhamma delight. They're delighting in the Dhamma, right? So you can see here what we're doing is we're turning more of our cravings towards the Dhamma. And then it's only when you're about to become an Arahant that you, basically when you, you let go of the Dhamma itself. So not something to necessarily worry about um, at the beginning of one's meditation, is this craving or not. Think of it as replacing unwholesome addictions with a more wholesome one. I mean, the breath is not, being craving for the breath and focusing on the breath will not harm anybody. <laughs> if, you can develop, <clears throat> if you can develop happiness through, uh, through focusing on your breath, you're going to become much more of an independent person. That will benefit other people. It's still conditioned, but... It's only when you've let go of your addictions to everything else that you can turn your mind to the addictions of the Dhamma. So don't worry about it. This kind of addiction is generally called chanda <laughs> in the canon. It's a good thing. Okay. So was there any more questions? Okay. So let's uh, finish. I won't do the actual bows, but I'll just finish with a short chant to the, uh, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. <clears throat> and we reached the one and a half hour mark. Arang Samma Sambuto Bhagavan Bhutang Bhagavan Tang Abhiwademi Swakato Bhagavata Tammo Tammang Namasami Supatipan no bhagavato sāvaka sango sangang namami. Okay. Very good. So it was nice to meet with everybody and meditate with you. Those were a lot of good questions. So I think for the third time, I wish you all the best with your meditation practice. And with that, we can maybe end the session, no? <laughs>